just for fun this week, I googled beautiful signs just to see what would come up. And there were many, many, many thousands of images of creative and innovative signs of all kinds advertising or naming all different kinds of products or businesses. I, I have to say that a, a, a great majority of those signs seem to be for coffee shops. And, uh, but even though those signs were creative and cool, unique and interesting, they were meaningless to me because I could not experience the things to which the signs pointed. That's the purpose of a sign, isn't it? A sign points to something beyond itself. So I'm looking through all these signs for coffee shops and they're really unique, really cool, and I want coffee. But those signs, they make me want to try uh, the coffee in these shops, but I can't because I'm not there. A, a road sign you know, points beyond itself, right? It gives you directions or locations. A sign for a business points to what the business provides or sells. Signs may be beautiful, but if we only admire the beauty of the sign, we miss the reason for which they exist. Luke has told us at the end of Acts chapter 2 that, the early church, that in the early church, the apostles performed many signs and wonders that amazed the people. I want to zero in on that word, sign. If a sign is meant to point to something beyond itself, then any sign performed by the apostles would likewise be meant to point beyond itself to something greater, something higher. And while many people, including us perhaps, might be amazed at the sign itself because miracles are amazing, if they and us stop only in amazement at the sign without realizing to what or to whom the sign is meant to point, we're going to miss its meaning. Immediately after Luke gives us the description of the early church, he spends all of chapter 3 and even into chapter 4 detailing, giving an example of one of these signs. And this is unique in the book of Acts because while there are many miracles mentioned and some few even described, there are none that are accounted with the detail or with the length that Luke uses with this one. And that's why I've called this sermon Anatomy of a Sign because it is Luke giving us a template, an example, a, a paradigm for the signs performed by the apostles. It's as though Luke is saying to, to us, the readers, they performed many signs and wonders. Now I'm going to give you an example of one so you will know what they might have been like. We want to examine this narrative so that we can draw out of it principles that are still most applicable for today. But above all, a point from which we begin is to understand what all these signs pointed to. They all pointed to Jesus Christ, to his presence by his spirit, to his power, his life, his resurrection, his love, his salvation. And these signs are an integral part of the witness of the apostles. We need to understand these signs in the context of witness. That's the thrust of the book of Acts. That's one of the primary impulses of the Holy Spirit is to inspire his church to witness. And these signs fit into the framework of the witness of the apostles. 
It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through them to point to Jesus. And that's crucial for us to understand. This sign is part of their witness to Christ. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 3, the first few verses there, as we begin to examine this sign and what its implications are for the church today. Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. As we work through this sign, I want us to see the sign as part of witness. So in this case, for this sermon, I'm going to be using those words, in a sense, interchangeably. So the first principle that I want to draw from this text is that witness, or a sign, this sign, flows out of a normal God-pleasing life. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Witness flows out of a normal God-pleasing life. What were Peter and John doing? They were going to the temple for the regular daily 3 p.m. prayer meeting. They didn't leave their house or wherever they were living saying, I, I mean, Peter didn't say to John, hey, John, let's go do some signs. You know, hey, let's go out and let's perform some wonders, okay? That's what we're going to do today. No, they are living a life that God has ordained for them to live, a life that's pleasing to him. They're living it with character. They're going about their daily routine of prayer at the temple. And the opportunity for a sign, the opportunity for witness presents itself to them. Now, if we are following in the heritage of the apostles, which I believe we are, if we too are witnesses called by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then our lives also need to be coherent with our witness. If our lives are disordered, if our passions are out of balance, if we are characterized by discord, disunity, bitterness, if we tolerate sin and we engage in it unrepentantly, if we embrace impurity and worldliness, then our witness is going to be compromised. When, when we know in our own hearts 
that we're not living in a way that pleases God, isn't it true that we become very, even more hesitant to speak about him to other people? Of course, because we can recognize many times that, that hypocrisy in ourselves. So witness flows out of a daily life that is God-pleasing. Going to school, going to work, completing your commitments, speaking with truth and joy, caring for your family, making a home, um, caring for our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ, dedicating ourselves to God's word. that's, That's how it begins. It flows out of that life. It doesn't start with a sensational miracle that astonishes crowds. The second principle about witness that that I'd like to draw here is that witness takes the opportunity that is offered. I'm going to say that again. Witness takes the opportunity that is offered. So not only do Peter and John encounter the witness opportunity in the course of their normal daily activities, but they take that opportunity when it's given. Now Luke, uh, he, he makes two statements to emphasize that this was a true miracle, a a true sign. He mentions, first of all, that this man was lame from birth. So it wasn't as though, because let's be honest, when we hear about miracles, we're pretty cynical, aren't we? Uh, We we question it. And even, even, you know, some of these supposed miracles that these televangelists perform you know, you know we, we're never really quite sure, are we? we? We look at it and we say, well, how do I know? How do I know that really happened? And maybe in the case of this, this man who's crippled, we think, well, you know, had he just sprained his ankle the day before and it was a little sore, you know, and now it's already better today. So when Peter says walk, it's already naturally healed itself. And we're, we're skeptical. We're cynical. But Luke says, this man was crippled from birth. So he's never walked. And not only that, but there are thousands of witnesses to this fact. Because he's been sitting at the temple gate every day begging. So as the population of Jerusalem on on a normal, regular day passes by him, thousands of people would have witnessed the fact, would have seen the fact that he was crippled, and not, not even to speak of feast days when thousands of others that didn't live in Jerusalem would have come to the city. So Luke says, first of all, he was lame from birth. Second of all, there are innumerable witnesses to the fact that this guy was truly crippled. Now, as he sits there every day at the gate to the temple, I'm assuming that he would have asked everyone going by for help. Maybe he had a regular chant or mantra, help the cripple, help the cripple, help the cripple. I don't know what he would have said. But if he'd done it for that long, he's got to have been in some kind of rhythm. And people would have been used to this. He was there every day. It would have been quite normal, right, for Peter and John to simply walk by him and on into the temple. Maybe others did that. You know, maybe they gave their monthly coin to this beggar, right? So they'd walk by him and say, well, I already gave you yesterday, so, you know, not today. Or not even say it, but just think it and go on into the temple. It would have been normal. It would have been completely understandable for Peter and John to just enter, continue on their way, and not be bothered with this man. But when they hear the man's request, it says that he asked them for money. 
when they heard that, they understood that request as an opening, an opportunity for witness, and they take it. A few weeks ago, in the context of talking about witness and, and our witness, our responsibility to witness, I mentioned that when, when, we are, when we are told in Scripture to not put out the Spirit's fire or to not quench the Spirit, one of the ways that we might do that is by refusing to witness. So if the Spirit is impelling His church to witness and we choose not to, we're stifling the Spirit or quenching His fire. And I know that there were some of you who were bothered by that, were concerned. Maybe we were a little convicted. Is that something I do? But I want to encourage you with this. Our concern in our prayer needs to be less, I'm going out today to witness, and more, Jesus, by your mercy, help me identify and take the opportunities that come my way. So instead of trying to force something, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, a godly, Holy Spirit-empowered awareness so that when opportunities present themselves, when openings are given, we are quick to both identify them and then to take them. I know that I can be hardened to these opportunities at times because they're inconvenient. They interrupt the flow of life. They, this miracle interrupted the flow of life for John and Peter, for sure. And we're going to see that they actually end up going to prison because of it. So there's definitely a, a bigger issue that they're facing because they took the opportunity. Now, for us, it's usually a lot less severe than that. But I remember about two years ago, I was in the airport in Frankfurt, and um, I, I was going to be there for about six hours. I had been dropped off early. My flight didn't leave for a long time. I actually was looking forward to that time. I needed to get some work done. Uh, and so I went to Starbucks, where I knew I could both have coffee and work for a long time. And it, it just so happened that as I'm trying to work on a sermon for church, actually, uh, there was a woman sitting very close to me at the next table. And at one point, she leans over and she said, excuse me, sir, would you watch my luggage and my, my bags while I go to the restroom. Now, of course, the first thing in my mind that goes, terrorist, terrorist, bomb threat, whatever. But, you know, I, I, and maybe I was wrong, but I looked at this woman, and she was an elderly woman, and I said, I doubt she's the one. So I was like, sure, go ahead. So I continued to work. She went to the restroom. She came back. And then um, when she came back, it was very clear that she wanted to chat. And... I didn't, just to be honest. I didn't want to talk. I wanted to focus on what I wanted to do, which was good stuff, right? It was preparing a sermon. I mean, that's important, right? That's godly. And the woman, she just kept talking. So finally, I just said, okay, I'm, you know, let's talk. And we talked about, I found out a lot about this woman. And, you know, she was from England originally, but had lived most of her life in Australia. She had children, and, and she had a very spiritual view of life, which meant it was just kind of all confusing. And so I did have the opportunity to talk to her about Jesus. She didn't seem very receptive to listening. She really wanted to talk. So I let her talk, and then after a little while, I said, you know, I, I, was, I, I was just like, I, I, don't, I don't want to keep 
on in this conversation. I, I, I want to do what I want to do. Um, and I ended up saying, you know, I, I need to use the restroom now, which was true. So, uh, you know, I'll say goodbye here. And I thought in my mind, I'm going to go find a different coffee shop. I'm going to use the restroom and go find somewhere else to work. And as I'm walking down the concourse of the, of the airport, the Holy Spirit really convicted me because he was giving me such an obvious opportunity. I mean, how, it wasn't that I was missing the opportunity. It wasn't that I didn't see it and all of a sudden this blaze of light comes from heaven and says, she wants to talk about Jesus. It was that I knew what, she, what God wanted. I knew what was happening, but I didn't want to take it. I didn't want to be inconvenienced. So I said to the Lord, I said, okay, I'm going to use the restroom and I'm going to go back to Starbucks. And if she's still there, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be open to wherever this conversation leads. She was just leaving Starbucks as I got back. We didn't have a, an opportunity to speak more. But I wonder for myself what fruit God might have wanted to bring out of that conversation had I been more obedient and more attentive, had I taken the opportunity fully. The sign of witness requires of us to notice the opportunities and take them. It is less that we go around looking and more that we live our lives, but we are aware and listening and looking and available when these opportunities arrive. So the first principle here is that witness arises. It flows out of a normal God-pleasing life. The second principle is that witness takes the opportunity that is offered. And thirdly, Witness recognizes the desperate need. This lame man calls out to Peter and John asking for money. Now, money was a need that he had. Due to his disability, he's unable to work. He was limited to begging for his income. He needed to eat. He needed money. He needed to survive. So it's understandable. His request was reasonable. Hey, can you help me out? Do you have any money? Now, I am both inspired and convicted by Peter's response to this request. It says, he and John both said to the man, for, well, first of all, they both looked straight at him. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. The pain of others is often profoundly uncomfortable to see. So if we take a, a direct example from, from this passage, you've seen the homeless on the street. You've seen the people who come to your car window at a stoplight asking for help. And let's be honest with ourselves, it's so difficult to look them in their eyes. Even sometimes when we do help them, when we have something to give them, it's almost as though we, look, we, we, we don't make eye contact. There's something unsettling and uncomfortable about truly seeing them and truly seeing their need. But Peter and John took the time to really see this man, to see him in all his suffering, all his unattractiveness, all his pain. It's the same way that Jesus sees each of us. Peter and John look straight at this man and they see his deepest need, which is interesting, right? Because his deep, deepest need is not money. And actually, his deepest need is not to be able to walk either. His deepest need is for his heart to be transformed and renewed by faith in Jesus, for him to be saved. That's his most primal 
need. You've heard me use the example before that if you witness a, a fire in a car, so this happened to me once. Uh, when I was in college, it was late at night and some friends of mine and I were on a road trip and we saw a car ahead of us drift off the highway, slam into a concrete barrier and burst into flame. So we pulled up just past it and we're running back to the car and I'll be honest, I've told you all this before, I stepped on something in the dark and I was, wasn't wearing my glasses and my contacts and I couldn't see. I stepped on something, I rolled my ankle, I fell down, I was useless. I hobbled over to the car and I saw one of my friends truly climbing into the car, pulling this woman out. And he saved her life. He did. Her leg was trapped. He managed to free it. And, and moments after he got, the, got her out, the car was just engulfed in flames and it burned to, burned to nothing. But here's the principle. Can you, can you imagine my friend Paul reaching in there and saying, wow, it's really hot in here. You must need a drink of water. Let me go get you a cup of water. Hang on there. I know it's hot. Just a moment. Now, you know what? I'm, I'm sure that woman was thirsty. I'm sure that she needed water, but that was not her most urgent need. Her most urgent need was to be saved, to be rescued from the flames. So Peter and John look at this man, and they know, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they know money's not his main need. Walking isn't even his main need. His main need is Jesus Christ. So they recognize his main, his primary need. And that brings us to the fourth principle. The fourth principle is this. Witness offers the greatest gift. Peter gets the man to look at him and at John, and he says, I don't have money. I can only imagine, you know, the man, hey, this guy's paying attention to me. They're looking at me. Maybe they're going to give me a lot of money. And he say, I don't have money. And you can picture the guy going, oh. Move on. Just go on in. You know, why didn't you just ignore me? You know, why did you stop? He says, I don't have cash. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. See the emphasis on the name of Jesus. That is ultimately what Peter and John are giving this man. The name of Jesus I was visiting, visiting Pastor Bill in the hospital this last Tuesday night. I'd spent the night with him, and on Wednesday morning, a doctor came in, one of his doctors, uh, a man we've known for many, many years, took care of me as a little child, cared for all of our family. He's a strong believer in Christ. I don't know how he did this. Apparently, either my mom or Pastor Bill must have mentioned to him at some point that we were preaching through Acts. So he looks at me and he says, so, you're preaching through Acts? I said, yes, yes, doctor, I am. And he said, I've been reading Acts again, and I am fascinated. Have you noticed the emphasis on the name of Jesus? And he whips out his cell phone, and he goes to Acts, and I'm watching as he scrolls, and I mean, it's all highlighted, and he has a special highlight just for the phrase, the name of Jesus. Un nome de Jesus, of course, it was in Portuguese. But he keeps going up and he's showing me, and you just see the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus over and over again. This is what... Peter and John are offering this man. Yes, there's healing. Yes, there's walking. We're going to see that in a moment. But it's the name of Jesus that is the greatest gift. And when Peter commands 
the man to walk, and he does so. It is an amazing, shocking sign. It's thrilling and chilling and remarkable and unprecedented. But as beautiful as the sign is, as beautiful as this man walking is, as beautiful as the healing is, it's pointing to something even greater, isn't it? It's a sign pointing to the power of Jesus to heal and save the soul. If he can save the body, he can save the soul. Salvation of the soul isn't something we see. Healing of the body is something visible. So it's a sign. It's it's a, a wonderful sign. It's an incredible sign. But if we only look at the beauty of the sign, if we only look at the healing, we miss Jesus. We miss eternal life. We miss forgiveness for sins. We miss healing of the soul. And that's the greatest gift that Peter and John have to offer this man. It's the greatest gift that any believer has to offer anyone else. Their personal witness to the transformative power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power to save from sin, death, and hell. Now here's the last principle for today. We're going to be spending a couple more weeks on this sign because there's more to come. There's an aftermath that is quite remarkable, that is quite impactful. But for today, this will be the last principle, our fifth one. Witness results in joy for the one healed and glory for God. Okay, let me say that again. Witness results in joy for the one healed and glory to God. Now we have to understand, right, that every time that we witness... Every time that a child of God speaks of Jesus, it doesn't guarantee a conversion of another person or other people to the gospel. So we know that. That's very clear. But when we are obedient to share, to witness, joy is always a product in one way or another. The power of God heals this man completely, and I like the way that Luke describes it. Remember, Luke's a doctor. So he's interested in these kinds of things. I can imagine him being extra fascinated by what happened. There were three aspects to this healing, if you think about it carefully. First of all, the text says that his legs and feet were strengthened. If this man had been lame from birth, then there was no muscle mass in these limbs at all. So there's physical healing that takes place in the strengthening of his legs and feet. Muscles grow there where there had never been muscles before. Muscles that did exist but had atrophied because they'd never been used were suddenly strengthened and made vital and strong and alive. I kind of wish that could happen in me without having to lift weights or run or do any of that stuff. Suddenly be muscular, right? There's physical healing that takes place But then secondly, there's another aspect of the healing that comes next. He's immediately able to walk. Now think about that. If a grown man has never walked, just because his legs and ankles become strong, there's a steep learning curve, isn't there? Most of us have seen little children that are just beginning to walk, and they're close to the ground. You know, there's a reason There are many reasons. There's a reason that God has children learn to walk when they're really close to the ground because they fall over a lot. And you know what? A one one foot tall uh, infant or baby or toddler has much less chance of getting hurt falling down than someone my size. 
when I fall down, things break. You know, when a little baby falls down, they usually, they bounce. Thank you. I don't know who said that over here. Thank you. They bounce, especially if they have big diapers on. They just bounce. <laughs> so God heals this man's knowledge and muscle memory. It's a miracle. It's, he gives him the ability to do something he's never done before. There's no learning process. There's no hesitation. He doesn't have to learn balance, weight distribution, or movement. Peter reaches out his hand to his right hand, takes him by the right hand. The guy stands up and he walks. That's the second part of the healing. God gives him the ability. So first, God gives him, strengthens his legs and his feet. Then he gives him the knowledge to know how to, to walk. And then thirdly, catch this. He is physically healed. Then he, he's mentally healed with the knowledge. And then we see that he is spiritually healed as well. Why? Because he recognizes the source of his healing. The witness to the name of Jesus has borne fruit because he's walking and leaping and praising God. And that's a picture of full-on, full-body, full-being worship, right? Because he is worshiping and praising body, spirit, and voice. And I love the description that Luke gives us. The lame man, he, actually, he's not a lame man anymore, right? His whole life, he's been defined by his handicap, by his weakness. He walks, but that's not enough for him. And can you imagine this? Can you picture it? This man gets to his feet and he takes the first steps that he's ever taken in his life. And he feels the strength in his legs for the first time. And he's like this. I, you just imagine him looking around. He's like, why are you guys just walking? Why are you, you guys come by here every day and you're always just walking? Man, let's jump. Let's leap. I remember as a kid learning this little song that's based on this, on this story. Walking and leaping and praising God. And so that's what he's doing. And I imagine it says Peter and John continued into the temple that this guy is just like leaping and jumping around them as they walk. And he's praising God and he's full of joy. It's just bursting out of him. And don't forget the onlookers. Don't forget them. The hundreds of people who witnessed the event and then thousands more who would have seen this man later, they had seen him before and now they see who he is now. They are, they are seeing a body renewed, a soul redeemed, and a spirit transformed by the power of the name of Jesus. They are filled with amazement and wonder. That's what the text says. And this is only the beginning of the sign. There are coming events that are going to point even more clearly to Jesus. You know, this event is one part of a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, 6, the prophet is describing the age or the era of the Messiah. And once the Messiah has come, he says, Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then will the lame leap like a deer. This guy's leaping like a deer. He's dancing, leaping, jumping, clicking his heels, doing back flips, front flips. I don't even know what. He is just relishing this newfound gift. And he's praising God. And that praise is coming from his voice, but it's coming from his body as well. His, his jumping in and of itself is praise to God. And what happens, it's interesting to see that uh, the one who receives the witness in turns, becomes a witnesser himself. So 
His praise is becoming a witness to others. Okay, let's draw this together. I've already made a couple little um, connections or applications for us. But let's draw it together for us here now in 2020. God may use you to perform signs and wonders. He may. God may choose to do miracles through you. In our experience daily, we know that those seem to be quite rare today. And I've already talked uh, in the last couple weeks about why that might be. I believe that he's still able to do miracles. But what we miss so often is that he is doing the greatest miracle. Jesus is performing the greatest sign possible on a daily basis all around the world. And that is that he is transforming lives. That those who are lost in their trespasses and sin move from death to life. The scripture says that the old person, the old sinful nature is put to death and they're reborn. That's miraculous, right? I mean, Nicodemus couldn't get his mind around that. He was saying, what, Jesus, I'm supposed to be born again? You want me to go crawl back inside my mom's womb and sit there as a grown man and then pop back out? And, and somehow the miraculous nature of the salvation of Jesus has totally lost its impact for us. We don't see it as a miracle. We don't see it as something extraordinary. Now, someone who's been lame from birth walking, wow, that's an amazing sign. That's incredible. A life transformed, a person living in sin, in bondage to sin, in slavery to sin, being set free and renewed in Jesus, not so much. But our church, our community at Calvary is full of this sign. Transformed lives. And each of us, who are believers in Jesus, each of us is a sign. Our lives are a sign pointing to the power of Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sin, but Christ has made us alive in him. And for each of us, for each of us, our witness to this transformation is the most powerful sign that we can share. So consider the points we've examined in this sermon, that witness flows out of a normal, God-pleasing life. Start there. Start there. Let's, as the Holy Spirit examines our lives, let's bring our lives into coherence with our witness or with what should be our witness so that when we speak, our, our actions, our lives support what we say rather than the other way around. Secondly, take the opportunities that the Holy Spirit gives you. And I'm speaking, as I already said, to myself as well as to all of us, to you, that, when we, that we would recognize those opportunities and then take them. Thirdly, see the true need of the people around you. Ask the Holy Spirit to reawaken in your heart, or maybe not reawaken, maybe perhaps to awaken for the first time the, the vision to see the desperate situation of those who don't know Jesus. And not just desperate because they might suffer in this life or because they deal with anxiety or because they, they, they deal with purposelessness or because they don't have a church community, but the deeper need, which is eternal damnation. 
to be separated from God forever. And that's the need that Christ most wants to meet. And then remember that witness, your witness, offers the greatest gift that can be offered, the truth of the gospel and how it has changed you and how it has changed me. If we are faithful in living as God would have us live, if we take the opportunities for witness as they present themselves, then the result is going to be joy for us, joy for others, and glory for God.